Let's now turn for our scripture reading to 2 Chronicles chapter 19. 2 Chronicles 19, we'll read through the chapter. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you, and that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. So Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people, from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim, and brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. Then he set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Now therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality nor taking of bribes. Moreover, in Jerusalem, for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and priests and some of the chief fathers of Israel when they returned to Jerusalem. And he commanded them, saying, Thus you shall act in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with a loyal heart. Whatever case comes to you from your brethren who dwell in their cities, whether of bloodshed or offenses against law or commandment, against statutes or ordinances, you shall warn them, lest they trespass against the Lord and wrath come upon you and your brethren. Do this, and you will not be guilty. And take notice, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of the Lord, and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters. Also the Levites will be officials before you. Behave courageously, and the Lord will be with the good. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the opening verses of this chapter, uh, we are reminded that uh, Jehoshaphat was sharply rebuked uh, by the Lord through his prophet for this disastrous alliance that he had made with Ahab. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Hard words, exposing a real failure in God's king. But then we find out immediately after this that this failure didn't define his life or his reign as God's king. It didn't uh, expose uh, a disloyal heart. Uh, he's described in verse 3 as one who prepared his heart to seek the Lord. And it didn't weaken his uh, zeal to keep God by serving God's people by doing good to them. In other words, Jehoshaphat didn't say, I give up. I can't please the Lord. I'm a failure. What good is it to try anymore? I'm not able to meet the demands of this task. I think I'll just retreat into my palace and, and live a quiet life. Sometimes that's a temptation, isn't it? Uh, when we mess up and uh, we hear the Lord's rebuke and our weaknesses and sins are exposed, and we can respond in that kind of deflated way, as if to say to ourselves and maybe to others, what good is it? Why should I even try? That's a real temptation. 
We see God's grace at work, don't we, in Jehoshaphat. The fact that uh, this rebuke didn't uh, deter him from carrying on in the calling that God had given to him. We see the, the spirit of Christ at work in him. He showed repentance by his further commitment uh, to the Lord's cause and to the good of God's people. And furthermore, we see uh, in verse 4 that he wasn't discouraged from continuing that work for the reformation of God's people. He went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. And that's where we stopped last time in our consideration of this passage. But it's very important that we look at verse uh, 3 or verse 4, rather verse um, 3, very closely in connection with verse 5. And if we do that, then we'll see that uh, repentance or, or serving the Lord uh, or true reformation, it doesn't simply stop with feelings. It doesn't simply stop with emotions. It's not simply a matter of the heart that doesn't come to expression in the work of our hands. Yes, of course, it must begin with the heart, but then it must become active in our work, in our hands, if you will. And so repentance or reformation uh, means returning to do what the Bible says. It means ordering our personal lives. It means ordering our church life according to what is written. And that's what we ought to recognize in Joshua's action in our text before us. He is applying the teaching of God's word for the good of God's people. And he does that specifically by appointing and setting up judges over them. And this chapter is largely a description of the arrangement, the task, the characteristics, and encouragements for the work of these judges that Jehoshaphat placed over his people. And we must see God's love for his people in this form. That's how it takes shape. The presence and work of Christ, uh, the king in his church, also appears that way. In Ephesians chapter 4, we read of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God, far above principality and power. And then we read that, and he gave. He led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. And he gave some apostles, some prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints. For the work of the ministry so that God's people might grow in maturity and faith, and God's people themselves might each one contribute something towards the edification of the body in love, every part doing its share. So there's a close connection between the love of Christ for his church and his work on behalf of and in the church and the order and the government of the church. And when we consider that... uh when we read of the history of Judah and Israel, we'll, we're actually reading also about the history of God's church in its old covenant form. Then we see that we're looking at a passage that's not simply full of historical interest and maybe some practical lessons for us personally, but we're seeing all kinds of application with respect to the government of the church. And I trust we'll be able to see that in some of the specific details that we're going to be considering this morning. 
But we want to begin by looking at the, the composition of these judges or their, their ordering, or perhaps we might say, uh, their makeup, the arrangement of these judges, judges. And there are a number of important things that we want to point out. First of all, uh, we want to see that qualified men were appointed in all the cities. That is, any city that amounted to anything. There perhaps were many uh, small hamlets and villages and gatherings of communities here and there. But, but the fortified cities, these significant cities, well, judges were appointed for them all. And I said earlier that this is an application of the teaching of God's Word. And uh, to demonstrate that, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, we have the word of the Lord through Moses. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. That's before Israel entered into the land of Canaan. But when they occupied those cities, God ordained that judges would be appointed among them to rule uh, his people. And these judges were to be chosen from among the people, and it also appears that they were to be chosen by the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. Moses didn't simply appoint uh, uh, people according to his own judgment, but the people were involved in discerning those men that were qualified for such work and choosing them for this position. Secondly, it appears that there is a kind of court of appeal, if we may call it that, that was set up in Jerusalem. They were, they were, they had their seat, if you will, the official seat was in Jerusalem. We might compare them to a kind of supreme court. And this uh, court of appeal, if we may use that language, was made up of priests and Levites. And you know that the priests were a subset of the Levites. The Levites were a tribe of Israel, and the priests belonged to that segment of the tribe, which by inheritance was actually occupied in the offering of sacrifices and the specific priestly work surrounding the temple and its maintenance and service. But the Levites as a tribe were set apart for special purposes by God. And on this uh, court of appeal, there were priests and Levites as well as tribal leaders. In verse 8, we have reference to that. And again, in verse uh, verse 10, or rather in verse 11, specifically the Levites are singled out as officials before them. They were to occupy a significant uh, place. And then thirdly, it appears that there were departments uh, among these leaders at Jerusalem. And they each had their own department head, you might say. In verse 11 it says, And take notice, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of the Lord, and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters. And so these men are specified as, in a sense, being head over these various branches of this court. And they're distinguished by serving in matters pertaining to the Lord. That is, things specifically spelled out in the law of God. And then there was a man who represented the king and his government. And that probably had to do with laws of taxation and government or military service and a whole variety of things. And are not spelled out in the law, but are matter of, matters of Israel's cooperative work together and the government 
under which they lived. Now, already at this point, brothers and sisters, I think we can see uh, some application of principles that are carried through uh, into the New Testament form of government in the government of the church. And very uh, basically, to begin with, we notice that God is a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. And things in the church are to be done decently and in good order. There is such a thing as church government that is revealed in Scripture. A kind of government that is based upon God's revealed will. And yes, uh, we recognize that there are some differences among among faithful churches that indeed seek to follow the teaching of God's will. Some of those are rather minor differences between Presbyterians and Reformed folk. Uh, and there are some other differences in matters that are not spelled out clearly. But we recognize that the, what is most important is revealed in Scripture. We confess in Article, chap, or Article 30 of the Belgian Confession that, that uh, there is a spiritual government, a spiritual order taught by the Lord in his word. And that involves the fact that there are ministers and elders and deacons in the church of Jesus Christ. And you find that in the New Testament, where the church at Philippi is addressed, along with the elders or bishops, interchangeable words, and the deacons. So that's very basic, but important. There is such a thing as church order. It's taught in scripture. And secondly, this order involves uh, what we might call a multitude of counselors. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety, there is wisdom. Paul required that elders would be appointed in every church. In other words, it wasn't left up to one or two top dogs, so to speak, at the point of a pyramid, and they ruled the church. No, there is a plurality of judges in every city. It wasn't simply a judge in every city, but judges. They were to cooperate and work together in discerning and applying God's word and his will. And this also is a feature of the government of the church of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, uh, some structure for appeal is also based on scripture. We have a principle here in the, in the law of God, but we see that that principle reflected also in the New Testament. When a, when an issue arose in the church, what happened? Well, the apostles and the brethren and the elders, they met in Jerusalem. You can read about it in Acts 15. And they considered what the word of God taught and they prayed and they gave counsel in a specific issue that arose in the church. And that's also reflected. It's reflected in, in Reformed and Presbyterian church government uh, as appeals or other matters of common concern and interest are addressed by broader assemblies, whether on the classist level or the synodical level. Again, that's an application of a principle. Not all the details are spelled out. We're not given a church order uh, from heaven. But there is a kind of church order that must be based on biblical principles. And we see some of those principles spelled out here. And we're also taught, we're, we're, we're given to see that the government of the church, like the government over God's people in Judah, was a spiritual government. The government of the church is under the rule of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. And that requires a spiritually minded people in order to live under the government of 
Christ. That, that means that those who are in position of leadership must be spiritual men. And it means that a spiritually minded people are necessary in order to discern those God-given gifts and qualities that show the work of the Spirit among us. And it requires a spiritually minded people that can recognize the gift of Christ and their office bearers. Spiritually minded people who can recognize Christ himself as present in the church through the very practical means by which he governs the church according to his word. Now those are some basic principles that we can derive from the composition or the ordering of these judges. And I've already alluded to the fact that uh, there must be a kind of qualification for such judges. And we want to highlight three things that are brought out particularly here in our text. First, uh, they must be men who fear the Lord. That's, that's mentioned twice with respect to both categories of judges. Those judges in the cities, they must be men who fear the Lord. In verse 7, in verse 9, the same thing is emphasized with respect to this uh, court seated at Jerusalem. And that is most basic. In fact, we can go to what we might see as the institution of the office of these judges in the book of Exodus and see that in the initial description that was given them. And again, there was a historical context in which judges were first appointed. It was a situation there in which uh, um, Moses' father-in-law observed that the people were standing in line all day long so that jo uh, Moses could give advice and apply the teaching of God's word to them. And Jethro said, you're basically going to get burned out with this. You need help. And no doubt Jethro was led with godly wisdom and God's spirit when uh, he advised the appointment of judgment because it became a, a law in effect in the government of God's people. But from the very outset, in the application of this, the qualifications for those judges involved the fear of God. You shall select men from all the people, able men, such as fear God. And then he elaborates that. Men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. There is a kind of structure and order to that task. The fear of the Lord. That's the only thing that will prevent them from those most recognizable, basic characteristics of the abuse of power. Covetousness, doing it for money, partiality, favoring the rich or favoring the poor, favoring the great or favoring the small, taking bribes. And those are spelled out in numerous places in a description of those uh, judges. They're not to be ruled by the fear of man. That's the exact opposite. They're not to carry out their work with their finger to the wind, figure out which way it's blowing so that they can do what's popular and avoid trouble and get reelected. But they're to exercise their office with their consciences bound to the word of God and their own lives ruled by the word of God, not by the fear of man, because they judge for God. They're not representatives of the people in the sense that their task is to give the people what they want. Their task is to do, to teach, and enforce what God wants in His Word. Basic, fundamental 
to their qualifications, that they're men who fear God, who truly revere him, and who value his favor far more than the favor of men, and fear his disapproval far more than the disapproval of, of others. Secondly, they must be knowledgeable men, because they have to deliberate, they have to make decisions according to the will of God. And that means they need to know the will of God. They need to consult it. They need to, they need to learn from it, from his word. And again, the scriptures point this out very specifically in, in Deuteronomy chapter one, verse 13. It says, choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. In the book of Malachi, that last Old Testament book, there is a description of the task of the Levites. God says, my covenant was with him, that is with the Levites, one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. That's a description of the Levites in their original zeal for God's honor. Remember, they're the ones that uh, stood up for the honor of God when Israel fell into idolatry below Mount Sinai, and they actually executed God's will in terms of punishing the people in their zeal for God. But in this description of the Levites, we have a description of their task and office that, again, is based upon Scripture. They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. Deuteronomy 33, verse 10. That was their task. Not simply for the priests. The Levites were to be found among all the tribes of Israel. And their job was to school the people, to teach them God's word. And that, of course, means that they had to be like Ezra. We need Ezra's in the church today. The man who studied the law in order to do it and in order to teach it. And we notice again in this ordering of those judges that priests and Levites had a place among them. The Levites, Levites were singled out as officials because it was their special task to really know the word of God. And then thirdly, they must be men of courage. In verse 11, the last part, behave courageously and the Lord will be with the good. I think it could be said that in today's climate, godly courage is probably a kind of characteristic and feature of church leadership that needs to be highlighted, not at the expense of other characteristics, but courage, courage to uphold the will of God. I think that's probably the the, the greatest handicap that, that many of us struggle with. They must be men of courage to make hard decisions, hard decisions that affect people's lives, hard decisions that will be unpopular with some. That's why they need the courage of conviction concerning what God's word teaches and to apply it faithfully. Now, again, we can see application with respect to the government of church. But before we do that, let's say that all these qualities that I just mentioned, they are characteristics that every Christian ought to aim at, right? Is the fear of God simply for church leaders? Shouldn't that be the mark of all God's people? What about knowledge? Shouldn't all God's people be seeking to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, growing in their knowledge of his word? If there's not a high emphasis upon the general knowledge of God's people, where are we going to get officers from? 
They're not imposed from above. They're from the congregation. If there's not a zeal among our young men to study the Word of God and grow in knowledge and faith, how are their gifts of knowledge ever going to be discerned? What about courage? Don't we all need the courage of our convictions? The courage to speak the truth in love to one another? I think if we grew in that courage, I would hear less complaints about other people, as if I'm expected to do something about it. <laughs> but rather, God's people would grow in their courage and ability to admonish one another, to lovingly speak the truth, to apply Matthew 18, to show that kind of love that takes courage. These are qualities that every Christian should aspire to. They are necessary for leadership in the church today. And they must be sufficiently evident to others. I already read from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 13, that the men were to be chosen from among the people. Well, how are they going to choose such men unless such men are known to the people? You know, the qualifications for office, they're not found in some secret document that we keep tucked away in the consistory room. They're in the Bible. First Timothy 3, Titus 1 and 2. That's because they're for the whole congregation to know. The qualifications for judges, indeed, uh, have a parallel in the government of Christ's church today. And so does the task of these judges. And their task, you've already alluded to it, is that uh, they were called to apply the law of God and the laws of the king. That means that they must decide cases. And deciding cases, well, there are no doubt a variety of cases that would be brought to them. Some of them might simply be matters of inquiry. What counsel do you give? What does the word of God teach? What is the right thing to do in this situation? And they were called upon uh, to answer questions of interpretation. The language of verse 8 is that they were to uh, exercise their office for the judgment of the Lord. That is, they were to express the judgments, and that doesn't simply involve the idea of punishment, but the Lord's decisions. So they were to know and to seek to apply them. And of course, then that would also involve them in instances in matters of controversy or matters of crime among the people. In verse 8, it says, well, verse 10, whatever case comes to you from your brethren in their cities, whether of bloodshed or of offenses against law or commandment against statutes or ordinances. And for controversies, yes, in verse 10. That involved deciding matters of guilt or innocence on occasion. And that involved determining the penalties of the law according to different circumstances. They were to judge justly. And again, now, that's the emphasis on these judges, right? That's a very limited description of uh, the work of, of uh, elders and ministers in the church today. But there's a parallel. Such responsibilities are also found. Uh, with respect to elders, because, I mean, look at Matthew 18. If he doesn't hear you, tell it to the church. Well, the church has to evaluate, make a judgment, then a decision then on cases that are brought to them. Right? There's a kind of order in the New Testament. You need to seek to discern what is right and true. And then secondly, along with this uh, general task that they have of uh, deciding cases, they must give warning. That's singled out here, isn't it? You see that in verse 10? It says, you shall warn them, lest they trespass against the Lord. In other words, their their calling as judges was to prevent sin also before it took place. And sometimes that, in mean, that means spelling out the consequences of sin. 
especially if people give evidence of not wanting to listen. Here there is certainly a parallel uh, with the prophetic ministry. We'll see that even in the language that's used there in verse 10 and how it compares with the task of, of Ezekiel as a prophet appointed by God. In Ezekiel 3 it says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them warning for me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. And so this matter of warning is elevated to such importance that a failure to do it means wrath against the judges, right? That's what it says there in plain words in verse 10. Lest they trespass against the Lord and wrath come upon you and your brethren. Do this and you will not be guilty. Do what? Warn them. Spell out the consequences of sin. And again, these tasks, both of them, decision-making and giving warning, they app they overlap with those of office bearers in the church of Jesus Christ today, especially those of ministers and elders who have word-centered tasks. Yes, they must apply the word of God to all different kinds of doctrinal and practical issues in the church. And sometimes those doctrinal and practical issues concern issues among members. And that requires conviction. And it requires courage. And church leaders must also follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles to give warning, to give warning. One of the ways in which we see the love of the Savior demonstrated uh, throughout his ministry, one of the ways we see it demonstrated in his letters to the churches, not only commending them for the grace of God evident in their faith or in their obedience, but warning them for unfaithfulness, sometimes spelling out the consequences, sometimes dire consequences of failing to heed God's word. Him we preach, Paul says, warning every man. That was the characteristic of apostolic preaching. If you have any doubt, read the apostle or re read the epistles in that light. How often do they give warning to God's people? Warning them for their life. Warning them for their good. Warning them in love as ones who are to communicate the word of the Lord for our salvation. Again, that's probably one of the hardest things to do as office bearers. And again, we ought not to think of warning simply as a wagging finger, as personal threats. But elders ought not to be afraid to say, brother, you, know, you continue in this path, it will lead to your excommunication. Turn for Jesus' sake. Consider the consequences of this or that action. Spell it out. Try to deter them. And sometimes that means you got to be prepared for a negative reaction. It's tough to do. Sometimes loving people is tough. It's hard to do. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Our goal is not to be thought of as nice people. Hopefully we will be. <laughs> but that's not our main aim. We want to be faithful to the Lord. There's a sense in which it's not only their souls that are at stake in this issue, but ours. I mean, that's what these judges were given to understand. If they failed to warn the people, if they failed to do their task as be a mouthpiece for, of God, they would be held guilty. Well, then finally, the encouragement of these judges. 
We already heard that uh, closing exhortation in verse 11. Behave courageously and the Lord will be with the good. We ought to hear that also as an inspiring call. The king, Jehoshaphat, had showed his great love for the people. Again, you go back to verse uh, verse um, 4. What does it say? And he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim, from, from the, the southern border to the north, visiting one city after another. It was quite a campaign, right? Must have taken a lot of time. Must have involved a lot of work. The words that we read in this chapter are mostly the words of Jehoshaphat the king. And you can imagine that he spoke such words again and again and again and again. I suppose it's possible that they were written down and this speech was simply handed out to the judges, but most likely Jehoshaphat, when these judges were gathered together, when they were set up, he would admonish them in the kinds of words that are recorded for us here. Because he loved the people and he was zealous for God's honor. And he sought to persuade them, to bring them back to the Lord by following his word. He really cared. And brothers and sisters, our king really cares. In Revelation chapter 1, yes, that, that or, or 2 and 3, yes, we have the account of our Lord's faithful warning, but... The whole situation begins with this vision of Jesus Christ in the midst of the churches, among the candlesticks, with the messengers of the churches as stars in his right hand. He's walking among them. And so we are to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is among us. And he loves us. Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her in death. Christ loves the church and he gives he gives gifts. He gives office bearers. He gives his Holy Spirit to equip them, to dwell in us, to build us up together as his body. And the Lord promises his presence in their work. We heard it in verse 6. You do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. And again, in verse 11, behave courageously and the Lord will be with the good. Yes, that's humbling because it not only is uh, encouraging with respect to the promise of Christ, but uh, it's a bit intimidating with the realization of uh, the seriousness of that calling. can't be taken lightly. At the same time, it should be positively motivating because it is Christ's work. And it's a work that is carried out through very imperfect means. And there's no other way to do it. Brothers and sisters, there's no other way for Christ to govern his church on earth than through very imperfect means. It's not in the hands of angels. It's in the hands of men. It's interesting that I, you might have noticed this morning, I seldom use it, but in our, in our salutation, I gave the salutation from uh, Titus, and it differs from the typical salutation of Paul to the churches. The typical, typical salutation is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But you turn to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, there is an addition. Grace, mercy, and peace to these specific individuals to whom he writes who are pastors or evangelists in the churches. It's just like these brothers not only need grace and peace, 
They need mercy. Yes. There's no other way than that this task should be carried out by earthen vessels. The final application. We are at that season of the year when the council is involved again in the nomination and election of office bearers. And let me make one one specific and one most pointed application. And that is, brothers and sisters, be an urgent prayer for us. I don't mean just us as a council. I mean us as a church. Do what we're charged to do in the ordination form. Sustaining them with your daily prayers. That's a description of the calling of, of the members of the church with respect to their office bearers. Sustaining them with their daily prayers. Now, if you don't pray for them daily, if you forget some days, my, my purpose in citing this is not to condemn or judge you, but strive to do it more often. Once a week, let your children hear you pray for the elders and deacons, for your elder, for your minister, because they so desperately need it, and you so desperately need it. Nothing is to be taken for granted here. The church can never coast along. It's either reforming or it's deforming. It's striving in faith to live up more and more to the Word of God, or it's in a state of decline. We're facing challenges as a church. We face disappointments as a church. We've lost families. We've lost members. And in every case, it hurts. Whatever the reasons, unless people are moving away from marriage or for other uh, reasons that don't involve a breach of fellowship or questions as to why or what feels like a breakdown in love. Yes, it calls for soul-searching. We face challenges, good challenges. The Lord, has, the Lord has brought new members among us. And it's a delight and pleasure to see new converts and people coming from different backgrounds. And that brings joys. And we benefit from things they bring to us. And it means challenges to disciple them. Recognizing that many of us take a lot for granted because we grew up in a certain Reformed culture where that's just the way you do things. And to disciple new members and to bring them along, to benefit from them, but also to instruct them and to seek to bring them also to a point where their young men could serve as elders and deacons because they could sign the form of subscription and they know what they're doing. And they know how Reformed government differs from uh, the kinds of church government or lack thereof that characterizes so many professing Christian churches. And they know what church discipline is all about. And they know what uh, guarding the sacraments is all about. Those are challenges that we face. Challenges in the nomination process. To apply those qualifications of office in the selection of specific men. Challenges on the part of those who receives a, receive a letter notifying them of their nomination how they think about it, how they process it. These are critical issues in our life as a congregation. And all that to say, pray earnestly. Pray earnestly for this congregation. That God would be merciful to us. That we grow in faith and love. That whatever transitions we may face in the next few years would be good. I think I can point out good things that have taken place in the last years too. 
Let's take nothing for granted and bring that down to this one simple thought. Pray. This is the first Sunday of the year. I remember in some, in the past, often the ordination of office bearers took place on the, on the first Sunday of the year, of a new year. It was like a new start. Be in earnest in prayer for this coming year with expectation that God will hear us and will be merciful to us and continue to bless us and be with us. Amen.